There. Now you can hear me a little bit better. Okay. Man, I'm doing everything wrong this morning, so that's great. Worry and anxiety. These are two words that maybe hit close to home for you. Uh, And if you didn't know, we're in the series of Ain't Nothing Gonna Steal My Joy. And uh, worry and anxiety are about as opposite as you can possibly get from joy. Some of you, this is a very true thing. Uh, You deal with worry and anxiety uh, in a heavy way in your life. That It's something that uh, plagues you and your walk with God on a frequent basis. And so when we begin to talky, talk about worry and anxiety, you probably start to feel worry and anxiety just to even talk about them. You begin to feel those emotions. The problem is, is I've, I've even heard Christians uh, claim, well, I'm just, a, I'm just a worrier, they'll say. And they say it almost pridefully, almost like as, as if the Word of God doesn't exist for them as if the, the truths of God don't exist for them. Well, I'm just a worrier. Well, no, you're not, because that's not how God made you. And worry and anxiety are not things from God. As believers, as Christians, what has power over us that is not of the enemy? Nothing. The answer is nothing. Nothing that is not of God has power over us if we're a believer. So no, you are not a person of worry. You're not a worrier. You're choosing to do those things. They do not have power over you. They cannot. They are not of God, and nothing of the enemy has power over us. He has conquered it all, and through His strength, we can overcome everything and anything. The Bible even calls it, it says, more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Now, if you can help me understand what more than a conqueror means, I would love to know because I've studied that extensively and I just don't understand how can you be more than a conqueror but for God. He gives us the ability to be more than conquerors. Corey Ten Boom puts it this way. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And that is very true. It just by worrying, if, you know, again, those people that would say, well, I'm just a worrier. What has that accomplished for you? The old saying, uh, worry is like a rocking chair. Keeps you really busy, but doesn't get you anywhere, right? And that's so true. By worrying, you're not going to take the, uh, the sorrows off of tomorrow or whatever day you're worrying about. All it does is it robs today of its power. God has so much for us today and we lose and we miss out on that when we allow worry and anxiety to rob us. The enemy seeks to rob you of the power of joy through worry and anxiety. If this is you this morning, if this rings true at all, or if you are already disagreeing with me and saying this isn't true, then this is for you. (laughs) Because the enemy has convinced you that worry or anxiety are just part of who you are, and that is a lie of the enemy. It is not. It cannot be as a child of God because it is not of God. How many times in the scriptures does it teach us, tell us, command us away from attitudes of worry and anxiety and toward dependence on the Lord and toward joy? Again, you can't be anxious or have anxiety and joy in the same moment. Now, you can have anxiety and have joy 
but you're not going to feel those two together because anxiety robs us of joy as we get anxious and we worry about things we cannot control. If this is you this morning, then Philippians chapter 4, it is for you because there is so much in here that God has to say um, to us. So let's open it up. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians 4 the whole uh, time this morning. So if you want to follow along in your own copy of God's Word, you're more than welcome to do that. The verses will also be on the screen. And again, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. So uh, it may or may not match up with exactly what you're reading. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. It's our last installment of this series, last um, one we're going to be going through for this uh, joy series. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Therefore, now that's a word that tells you what? You have to look back at what was said before. Therefore means, based on all that I have said thus far, this Next thing is what I want to say based off of what I've already said. And as we've studied Philippians chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see Paul talking about what? Joy. Joy through all circumstances and every circumstance. Leaning into the power of God, leaning on God, and what results from that is joy. Why? Because everything's good? Not a chance. But because as we rest in the Lord, it doesn't matter what our current circumstances are. It doesn't matter if we have what we want. It doesn't matter if everything is the way we think it should be. When we rest into God and into His hands and His arms, we realize joy in our circumstances comes not from, uh, it's not a byproduct, it's a choice. And we choose to be joyful because God is in control. In this verse, you can also, you can hear the love that Paul has for the Philippian people, the people of uh, this church. And if you don't know, that Paul has a special relationship with the Philippians. Uh, it comes out in other places, but it definitely comes out in chapter 4 here. Um, he has a unique relationship with the people of this church, and, and we really get to see that through his letter to them. He even loves them enough to confront people that are in conflict. We see this in verse 2. Now I appeal to Iodia and Sintik, because, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Now, if you don't know these kind of letters, the way these letters would be written is, say, you know, we have a relationship with two different international couples. If they were to send us a letter, um, and, and what I would do if, if this was back in that day is I would take that letter, I'd bring it up here, and I'd read it in front of all of you. So, how, uh, how would you feel if you were having a conflict with somebody within the church and we talked about it up here and up, up front? You know, like, uh, I'm just using John and James because they're standing right here. So, John and James, if you guys could just resolve your conflict, that'd be really good. Uh, we, both, we all know you're in conflict and you should deal with it. How would you all like it if anybody up for that uh, form of conflict resolution in the church? No? Uh, that would be a... Uh, That'd be a little difficult. Um, certainly not our culture to do something like that. So I think it begs the question, why does Paul address the entire church regarding this conflict between these two women? Why does he make this a public matter? Because these letters are always read in front of the whole church. And as a matter of fact, sometimes they're passed around. I don't think this was one of those letters that was passed around to, to many churches because this was, this was specifically for the Philippian church. Um, 
But even in Philippi, sometimes they'd pass these letters around to the churches in Philippi, in the specific region they were written to. So why is Paul addressing this conflict to the whole church? And this is one thing, again, if you're a note taker, write this down. Because two people in a church family cannot be in conflict without it affecting the entire church. This is the truth we have forgotten and we ignore in the church. Two people in a church family cannot be in conflict without it affecting the entire church. Now, you might think the um, disagreement you have, you might think that problem you have with that individual, it's just between you and them. It's not. Paul makes that very clear here. Because honestly, if that's not true, this is pretty inappropriate of Paul. To, to put a personal disagreement out for everybody to hear, we would say, yeah, that was inappropriate. If I were to do that as your pastor, you would think, that was inappropriate, pastor. You shouldn't bring you know, a private conflict out in front of the entire church. But that's not the way they saw church. It wasn't a social club for them. It was a family. And any conflict affected the family because they were so close. So Paul enlists the entire church to help with this conflict. So not only imagine these circumstances, if, if you were in conflict with somebody that we brought it out and put it on blast in front of the whole church, but then he, and then he asks the whole church to help. Hey, whole church, help these two get, you know, get through this disagreement. Man, that, now you're really mad at the pastor because now he's not only brought it out in front of everybody, but he's actually enlisting everybody's help to resolve the conflict. Uh, verse 3. And I ask you, my true partner, which many believe he's speaking not to a person but to the church itself, I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Paul's being very clear here. Both of these women are good women who work hard for the gospel. There's something that sometimes we, we miss out on when we're in conflict or somebody else is in conflict. We always think one party's at fault. One party's the bad guy. They're the less spiritual person. How many of you have been, don't, don't raise your hands now, how many of you have been in conflict where you realize, man, we're both not being very uh, spiritual here? Or uh, you've seen two people in conflict and realize they're both great people. They're just having a disagreement. There's just something that isn't connecting. There's been a misunderstanding. There's been something that has gotten between the two of them. It doesn't make either of them less spiritual. It doesn't make either of them less uh, a servant of God. We all have conflicts. We get into conflicts. It's when we allow them to continue, convince ourselves, it's not hurting anybody else. It's not affecting anybody else. It's just between me and that person. And then don't, don't butt your nose into it. Don't, don't get, get involved in my business, man. That is from the enemy. Now, honestly, I, I truly believe, it, which if you know me, you know I'm not afraid of conflict, um, which is different than most of you. I understand that. <laughs> you avoid conflict at all costs. But I believe this is the better church model. Instead of hiding it, stuffing it, uh, acting like you and your conflict between somebody else is a private thing, is to say, you know what? We've got a conflict. Let's deal with it so we can move on as a family. Well, first off, our church would be a lot smaller because if you weren't willing to deal with stuff, if you wanted to hold on to baggage, this probably wouldn't be the church for you. But those that remained, wow, we'd be pretty close. And there, there wouldn't be any junk between us as we enter into worship. And I'm telling you, if you think that you can come into church 
uh, or through the rest of your week, and you can engage God, and you can worship Him without any distractions, yet you have this problem, you've got this disagreement, this conflict that's ongoing that you're not willing to resolve, you're not worshiping God in the way that He wants to be worshiped, because He's very clear. Deal with the conflict. Matthew 18, very clear. Deal with these things. And right here, Paul is bringing it out in front of everybody. We have to move on. We have to go through these conflicts, and bring the whole church in if you have to. It doesn't mean that either person is is a horrible person, as he's saying here. They're both good people. They just need to deal with this conflict. Verse 4. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice. It's kind of a change in trajectory here in the thought process that's going on. He's like, hey, these people are in conflict. Deal with these conflicts. Rejoice! Right afterward. But Paul returns to his main theme of the letter joy. That's what this letter is all about. He even repeats himself to ensure that his emphasis is understood by those reading the letter. He says, I, I rejoice. Now, I just want to make sure I say it again. Rejoice. Even though this is a, a letter that they could just read it again, he really wants to make sure that he's being very clear. Rejoice. Notice the word full. Be full of joy. As you look back on this past week, how many of us could say, that was a week full of joy? Because this is a commandment. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a uh, request on Paul's part. This is him giving out a commandment. And if we believe that Paul wrote inspired by the living God, then this command is true, not just for the church of Philippi, but for us as well. Be full of joy in the Lord. And yet how many of us live day after day, week after week, not even half full of joy. We allow the enemy to just come in and rob us of joy on a regular basis. And we have believed the lie, this is normal. This is okay. This, just, this, this is just the season of life you're in, the enemy will tell us. This is just where you're at right now. It's a lie. Paul says, always, always be full of joy in the Lord. This should be us, church. Christians, there shouldn't be anybody in the world who knows how to be joyful better than Christians, who has a uh, more pleasant demeanor, who is able to see the, the, the silver lining in the cloud better than Christians, because we have more than anybody, we have more to be joyful for than anybody who walks on this earth, hands down, no questions, because we are His. We are redeemed. We are children of the Most High God. Now, does that mean that you're always happy and you're always, you know, there's never a bad day? Absolutely not. That's not what it means. Paul's having a bad time. He's in prison. It's not a nice prison. It's not a cushy prison. Most likely, he's chained to a Roman guard because Paul just has a way of walking out of prison, so they've chained him to people at this point, uh, and yet he's telling them, be joyful. If a guy sitting probably in his own filth, chained to a stinky Roman soldier in prison with no hope of getting out, with no explanation of even why he's in there, with no route, uh, it wasn't like they had a good justice system where he knew, well, once I get before a judge, everything will be good. He didn't have any of that. And he's the one saying, always be full of joy. And men, why are we letting the enemy rob us of joy? 
Are you willing to make that commitment in your life? To say, you know what, Lord? I'm done with letting the enemy rob me. I'm done with living my life as if this verse isn't true. Because if you leave today and you say, "Ah, I'm not going to be joyful, you are saying to God, I don't believe your word. I do not believe the word of God. I don't believe it's true, and I don't believe it's got the power for my situation because I'm special. And you don't understand my circumstance, God. Yes, he does. And yet he penned this through Paul, always be joyful. So I challenge you to make that commitment this week to say, you know what? Every single day this week, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to speak this verse over me. Always be joyful, uh, full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. And you need to repeat this verse as many times through the day as you need to and ask God to give you the ability to be joyful in every circumstance. You might not be in a great job. You might hate your job. You might not like your neighbor. You might not like your family. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Find ways to be joyful. It's not a byproduct. It's a choice. Verse 5. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Amen. Their testimony to the community around them should show their joy in practical ways. That's what Paul is saying here. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. What does being considerate mean? It means you put the interests of others before yourself. It means you at least consider the thoughts and the desires and the needs of those around us. Now, if you remember earlier in Philippians, what's Paul's big push for them is put others before yourself. Don't just think of yourself, but think of others before yourself. Actually consider them more worthy than yourself and and put their needs before your own, Paul is telling them. And now he's saying that this should be how it is, that our testimony as a church, and I think this still exists for Dubois Alliance Church. I don't think God has changed. I'm pretty sure the, the word of God is clear on that. That our testimony to the community should be one of being considerate. That's why I think I I put such a big push on community days. I love it. It's such an easy way for us to show our community how much we love them. To just hang out in the booths, to hang out by the the, uh, mini golf tent and and the, the baby changing and the nursing tent and just say, hey, we love you and we just wanted to provide these for you at no cost to, you know, we're not, nobody's making money off of this. This is for you, community, and we love you. And that's what I want us to be able to do, not just in community days, but all year round. I want us to find new ways to tell our community we love them. I love that the, the clinic is here in our, in our fellowship hall, and we have hundreds of people every week going through our church, being loved by our church, and it, what is, it doesn't require much of, of anything from us. And they're getting a positive experience from the church. It's showing we are considerate toward our community. We're putting their needs above even some of our own preferences, and we're saying, let us bless you. Now, as we look at this, Paul says, remember, the Lord is coming soon. Was Paul wrong? Was he mistaken? Because I don't know about you, but I, I don't think he's come back yet. So I don't think the Lord has returned. Was Paul wrong? No. God just doesn't view time like we do. 2,000 years is nothing for him. And so soon is a relative term. Do you believe Jesus Christ could come back today? I hope so, because he very much could. There's nothing that hasn't taken place that needs, still needs to take place. I've heard, well, you know, this thing, I, listen, you can interpret that all any way you want. I believe in the imminence of Jesus' return. 
could be today. It could be before we finish this sermon. But I'm going to live today like he's coming back and like he's not. I'm going to invest in the community. I'm going to invest in what God's doing in ways like he's not coming back because I want to be prepared, but I'm also going to be prepared should he arrive today. I'm not going to be writing God a bunch of IOUs and I was going to do this, God. I was going to talk to my neighbor. I was going to serve you. I was going to finally start to, to be obedient to the words that I know that you have spoken over me. So I said that this wasn't possible, but I just want to know, have any of you ever uh, mastered being both joyful and anxious in the same moment? No, nobody's mastered that, like being racked by anxiety and yet joyful at the same time. No, no one's mastered that. See, anxiety robs us, robs us of joy. I don't know if you've ever had anything stolen from you. Anybody ever, ever, ever had anything stolen from you? I know, I, I have. How does that make you feel? Is that like warm and fuzzy to know that somebody has something that they, they, they obviously needed? No, you get angry. You know, I'm, I hate when I, I, I get, first thing I can remember being stolen is I got an iPod. Now, for some of you that are younger, this was a thing that looked like a phone, but wasn't a phone. It had music on it. Uh, and I had spent a lot of money on it, saved up for a while, got this nice iPod, and it was gone. And like, I had it for like two days, and it was gone. Somebody stole it. I know who it was. But I was so mad that this, this was stolen. It was the first thing I ever remember having stolen from me. And it made me angry. And yet, wow, okay, that's some anger there. And yet the enemy constantly robs us of joy. And we just say, oh well. Like as if, imagine being in your own home and someone breaks in and starts to take your TV while you're sitting on your couch and you just go, oh well, this is my life. This is just how it is. I guess this is my lot in life. And we begin to make excuses for them. I, well, they probably need it, so you just go ahead and take that. No, we'd be mad, we'd be angry, we would fight, we would do something, we would engage in that because we don't like things being stolen from us. And so as the enemy robs us of joy, we should be very aware of this. Uh, how many of you know who Warren Wiersbe is? No? A couple nerds. Okay, a couple nerds in here who know who Warren Wiersbe is. We read a lot of Warren Wiersbe in college. Uh, good theologian, really smart guy, wrote a bunch of really boring but good stuff. Um, so if you like to read that kind of stuff, Warren Wiersbe is your guy. But he's quoted to say, Most Christians are being crucified on a cross between two thieves, yesterday's regret and tomorrow's worries. And this is so true and so profound. And Paul deals with both of these in the book of Philippians. Last week we saw how Paul encouraged the church to stop the thief of yesterday's regret to rob us of that joy. We had to stop that thief. He says in Philippians 3, verse 13, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, he says, and looking forward to what lies ahead. This is robbing the enemy of the, the, uh, what did he say, the, of yesterday's regret, the thief of yesterday's regret, stopping that thief in his tracks and saying, you know what? I'm not going to allow the past. I'm going to forget what is in the past, and I'm going to look forward to what is ahead. 
Now, you might be that kind of person. It might be really easy for you to forget about the mistakes of your past, and, and you, can, you can lay that stuff down. But man, as you look into the future, worry and anxiety rack you. And so in verses 6 and 7, Paul is encouraging us to stop the thief of tomorrow's worries from robbing us of that joy. Verse 6 says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. So, for those of you who still might be combative in your mind and say, it's okay to be a person, a worrier. It's okay to be a worrier. It just means you're concerned. Don't worry about anything. Again, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't a highly recommended by Paul, five stars. This is a command. Don't worry about anything. So, in order for us to be faithful and obedient to God, are we allowed to worry? No. Is that going to stop some of you from worrying? No. This doesn't mean that if you worry, well, you're just a bad Christian. You're just not a, you're just not a good follower of Jesus. What it means is it's time to suit up, and it's time to engage the enemy, because he's engaging you through worry. He's trying to fight you and knock you off track through worry. And so, don't feel sad or sorry for yourself. Engage. Engage the enemy where he's engaging you. Fight back. How do you fight back? Pray about everything. Take everything to the Lord and thank him for all he has done. See, my favorite version of this verse actually puts it the way that I prefer it, and it says, Through th- by thanksgiving, make a request made known to God. That's how I memorized it. That's my favorite way to think about it. Because as you begin to thank God, take some time this week and begin to recount all the things that God has done for you. And I'll tell you one thing that won't be present, anxiety. As you begin to thank God for all he has done for you, as you remember the ways that he has shown up and shown off in your life, the ways he's done things far beyond what you could have ever asked or imagined, anxiety starts to slip away. And it starts to fall away from us as we think and we remember, man, God has been so good. Who am I to worry? That's why I think the Lord's example of prayer, his model of prayer, tells us to to thank him for all that he has done. And, And as we go through the things, as we worship him for who he is, as we thank him for being our father, as we do all of these things, and then in the middle of it, we finally get to and make a request made known to him. And it's, it's bring, bring your thing, the things that you want. It's, that's where we finally do that. And if you do the Lord's model of prayer right, by the time you get to the place where we ask him for things, we've already spent time worshiping him, thanking him, acknowledging his power. And we get to where it's time to ask him for things. And it's like, hey, I came in with this thing I thought was huge, but now I realize it's just kind of a pebble. So here it is. If, you know, do what you want with it. I know you're good, and I know that you're strong enough to do this. Are you an anxious person? Become a person of prayer and a more thankful person. Learn to count your blessings as often as you need. Don't just be a general, a person of general appreciation, a person of general thankfulness. Stop and specifically recount the things that God has done for you on a regular basis and watch as anxiety begins to take a backseat to thankfulness. Because thankfulness and anxiety cannot coexist together. One will chase out the other. As we're anxious, very often we're not, very, we're not thinking, oh God, thank you for showing up in ways that are way beyond my power. Thank you for being an awesome and majestic and powerful God. Thank you for always being my provider. But I'm still concerned that I'm not going to make it through tomorrow. 
it just those two things don't coexist well. And so as we begin to remember all those things and be thankful, we watch anxiety float away. And look at verse 7. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Notice what God's peace protects here. As we're thankful, as we decide we're not going to be people of worry, look what God's peace protects. The objects of anxiety, our heart and our mind. What does anxiety do to our bodies? What does it raise? Your blood pressure. Yeah, stress level, which does what? It affects your heart. It physically affects your heart. Those of you who are anxious people, it affects your mind. Some of you, you can't stop. It's, it, it, it takes hold of your mind, and you get, thought, you get so caught up in all of these thoughts and these worries and playing out different scenarios. How many of you have had an arg- argument 50 times before you even talked to the person? I have. Okay, I'm being honest. I have. <laughs> That's my anxiety. That's what I do. You know, if, if I'm in conflict with somebody or if, I'm, if there's a situation, man, I'll, I'll have that scenario 30, 50 times before it actually happens. And we're worried, we're anxious about things that haven't even taken place yet. And our mind gets so caught up, and it's our mind and our heart, and I just think it's awesome. Look at this, it's just amazing. Back in this day, they wouldn't have known anything about blood pressure or, or heart stress or things like that. And yet God's saying, be thankful, be people of peace. God's peace, what will it protect? Your heart and your mind. The things that are the exact object of anxiety. The things that suffer the most from anxiety. One of my favorite people in the and, oh no, I'm sorry, I've got to read this verse first. I don't want to get too, too, too ahead of myself. Verse 8. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Like I was saying, one of my favorite people in the world... His name is Craig Rochelle. And he says in a book that I'm currently reading, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. And this is such a profound truth for me. As I'm reading this book, I'm like, man, this is so, so true. This is what God is saying here. This is why there's an encouragement to fix our thoughts on these things. And, and, and it leads me to a question. How often do you purposely fix your thoughts on positive, life-giving thoughts? Not just when they come, do you notice them, do you acknowledge them, but how often do you purposely fix your thoughts on the things that Paul is telling them to fix their thoughts on? Because... Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. As we allow anxiety and worry to exist without conflict in our hearts and our minds, and we wonder why we constantly are placed in situations that are worrisome and anxious and create anxiety in us because that's what we're fixing our minds on and what we're fixing our thoughts on. We are to fix our thoughts on what is true, it says, Let me go back to that verse so it's up there. What is true? That corresponds to reality. What is anxiety other than being worried about things that haven't happened yet, things that are not reality? And he's saying, stop fixing your thoughts on what isn't yet true. That's what anxiety is. 
It's just worried about what will happen, what could happen, what isn't true, what isn't reality yet. True, honorable. These are lofty, majestic, awesome things. That's what we're supposed to be focused on. Not the nitty-gritty and the dirt and, and, the, and the corruption of this world, but what is honorable, right, he says. This is justice, not vengeance. I don't know if any of you have ever been caught up, whether it's a conflict or other things, and your thoughts are not on justice, on doing what is right and just, but on getting even and on vengeance and on doing something. If you've ever uh, fantasized in your mind about getting back at that coworker at work by doing something that makes their life more difficult or embarrasses them, or that's not what is right, what, is Paul ta- what Paul is talking about here. He says, pure. These are things not tainted by the sin of this world having pure thoughts, focusing on things that are pure. Next, he says, lovely. These are thoughts of peace and reconciliation, focusing on how can I find peace in this scenario? How can I be reconciled with this person? Not focusing on all of their wrongs and all of the things they did and and on the things they said and, and their tone and the way they wrote that email and the way they said this. Those aren't lovely thoughts. Lastly, he says, admirable, things worthy of praise and approval, to be thinking on these things, to be thinking on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. We should forcefully fix your thoughts on these things because our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. If we're focused constantly on getting even and, and sticking it to that coworker, we wonder why we just can't seem to uh, get them to accept our invite to church. Well, duh, because you're not focusing on the things Paul's telling us to focus on. Verse 9. Our, uh, there we are. Keep putting into practice all you have, all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Paul is immediately beginning to silence the lies of the enemy that this kind of thought life isn't attainable, that it's not possible. Because as you look at this and you say, yeah, you can say that to fix my thoughts on all those things that Paul just mentioned, but that's not really possible. And Paul says, ah, follow me. He's saying, just follow what I've already done and you'll be doing what I'm commanding you to do. Paul is saying, follow my example. It is what I'm telling you to do. And if Paul can do it, did Paul have access to some special spirituality that we don't have access to? Of course not. The same Holy Spirit in Paul that enabled Paul to do everything he did is the same Holy Spirit which indwells us today. And has God changed? No. Has his power lessened? No. Just because the culture around us has gotten darker, we might say, does not mean the power of God is any less strong than it has ever been. And so if Paul can do this, if Paul can walk this walk, then so can we. We can follow his example. And he's saying to the Philippian church, don't allow the enemy to tell you this isn't possible. And so you might be here this morning or you might be listening this morning at home and the enemy's already telling you this isn't possible. You're always gonna be a person who's anxious. You'll never get away from this. It's just who you are. It's how you're created. It's how your brain works. It's a lie. And the enemy wants you to believe it so badly, but the truth of God cannot be changed for our individual circumstances. Just because we might be someone who likes to think of the future, who likes to plan ahead, that's great, that's fine. But that doesn't mean we have to be anxious about it. 
or let worry take us over. Verse 10. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Now, through studying this, we don't really know what is behind the Philippian church not being able to, uh, not having a chance to help Paul. We don't really know what he's referring to. This is kind of insider knowledge that we don't have. But Paul affirms that he is aware they have always been concerned for him. He's not downplaying uh, that reality or whatever the situation was. He's not saying, well, shame on you for not helping me. Paul also wants to be clear that he's not asking for more gifts from them. This letter isn't written in order to um, guilt them into giving him more stuff. He says in verse 11, Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Now this is pretty cool, because have any of you ever been discontent with your worldly possessions, with your bank account, or the size of your house, or the quality of your car, or all of those things. I, I, if I'm honest, I have. I've been frustrated with it. I'm like, I, I wish I had, if I just had 10,000 more dollars a year, man, what I could do with that. Paul cracked the code on this. He's cracked the code on how, on how to be uh, financially in a place where you can be happy. He says, learn to be content with what you have. That's, that's the secret. If we can learn to be content with what we have, and we're not always constantly thinking about how we can get more, how we can attain more, how we can get, a, get our hands on more. He says, just learn to be content with what you have. When you can be happy with what God has given you, that's when God can bless us more. Philippians 4.12. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And this is cool because if you don't know about the current cultural context, and this doesn't hit you the way that uh, it should, because one of the things that the culture around the Philippians and around Rome and all of this is that there were so many religions that were starting that claimed they had this secret. They knew the secret to spiritual enlightenment. They knew the, the secret to God and to all of these things. And Paul's saying, I know the secret. It's learning to be content. And so he's, he's almost like given a jab into all these people who are saying they have this great secret about spirituality or about uh, the deities of the time or all these things. And Paul's saying, here's a secret. Just learn to be content. Stop wanting more and just be happy with what you have. Paul is a man of joy because he has learned to be content, not because he got what he asked from the Lord. He's pretty clear. There have been times where he's asked for things and God said no, and yet he is a person of joy. He says, I asked God to take us away from me, and he hasn't done it. But Paul is still a person of joy. And then one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible Verse 13, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I've heard this quoted so often, and I see this most often used when someone wants to accomplish something for their own glory and use God's power to get there. I can do everything through Christ, and then they pat themselves on the back as soon as they accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. That's not what this verse is for. Paul is saying, you can, through the power of the living God, learn to be content as a poor person. Yay! No one's celebrating that verse. And he's also saying, which some of us 
wish that we would have the opportunity to get here, but until you learn to be content with where you are, you're not going to get to this other place. And he's saying, I've even learned through the power of the living God how to be content even when I have everything. And as we look at the Word of God, what happens so often when people get what they want, when they, when they get success, what happens? They immediately turn from God. Israel did it constantly. Every time they were rescued, when things got peaceful, when things were at rest, when they had everything they wanted, they turned from God. And Paul is saying, only through the power of God can I have everything and still be faithful to him. I can do everything through Christ, he's saying. In his current circumstances, Paul has very little. And just whatever gift the Philippian church brought him through Epaphroditus, whatever that was, man, it was such a blessing to him because he has nothing. He's chained in a dirty, disgusting prison next to another Roman soldier who probably doesn't have a whole lot of respect for him or who he is. And he yet, he's saying, the strength of God gives me the ability to be content. And I believe, Paul's not lying here, he is perfectly content with where he's at in this moment in his life. Verse 14, even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. (laughs) So Paul has to say, I'm telling you that I'm really content and I'm really happy with where I'm at and I can be content with absolutely nothing, which if you're reading this letter, you might think, well, then why do we spend so much money sending Paul all this stuff? Like, why did, we, why did Epaphroditus almost die to bring Paul this gift if he's not even appreciating? So he's making it clear, I do appreciate what you did. I'm not saying that what you did was useless or it was fruitless or there wasn't any benefit to it. He's being clear about that. I want you to know, I, he doesn't want to belittle their gift and make it seem like, well, you know, I didn't really need your gift because I'm good in all circumstances. He's saying, no, it was so appreciated what you did. Their generosity was appreciated by Paul, even though Paul didn't need it, he's saying. But God used it to bless him. Verses 15 and 16. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. Paul is recognizing here their patterns of generosity. Paul's acknowledging this wasn't just a a moment of emotional giving where they were really pressured into this and they gave in this one time and um, that was it was really great because the pastor preached a great message and it made you feel feel really guilty so you all threw a bunch of money in the plate. It's not what he's saying. He's acknowledging their pattern of constant generosity toward him and toward God. And so this leads me to another question. Is there a pattern of generosity in your life? You hear me very, very rarely talk about tithing. Well, I talk about it every week because we, we actually take tithes and offerings. But very few times do we actually stop and talk specifically about tithing. And I don't know. Uh, I don't ever see the financials of the church, so I don't know who actually tithes and who doesn't tithe. But is that a pattern of generosity in your life? If you're wondering, it is commanded. Uh, it's still a New Testament thing. Jesus affirms it. But is there a pattern of generosity? Or are we asking God to bless us while we frequently rob him and say, well, you know, I know you say we should tithe, but I'm just not going to do that. But I still want you to bless me. I still want to learn how to honor you when I have everything. And God's saying, you're not even honoring me when you have a little. Well, what do you expect is going to happen? 
I don't know if you've been in this scenario. I, I know uh, at this point in life, I think our, my wife and I's income is about twice that of what it was when we were first married. And I can tell you from when we were first married to where we are now, it doesn't seem like we have a whole lot more. Why? Because as we grew, as our income grew, so did our needs grew. We've added things to it, and some of you can experience that in life. You ask God for a little bit more, you get a little bit more, and you realize, oh, I still don't have enough. And I've sat with so many people who say, I, 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 I want to tithe just as soon as I make enough. And just never get to that point. Pattern of generosity is not one of convenience. It's of necessity, saying, this is yours, now the rest of it I have to spend. That's not yours, God. And, and so Paul was saying to them, uh, in their generosity, I, I acknowledge this, this great pattern that you have of giving. Um, the Philippian church has been a continual blessing. Paul talks about that many times in his book. But Paul also wants to make sure that his, his conversation about generosity, his conversation of giving, isn't about fundraising. It's not a fundraising attempt on his part. Verse 17, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. Paul is far more concerned with the reward they get for their generosity and kindness. Now, is Paul saying that if they give more or if they continue their pattern of generosity, that God's going to bless them and they'll all have mansions and private jets? Of course not. That's not, that's not the message. And anybody who tells you that if you give to the church or if you give more to God that he's going to bless you financially is a liar. He's a flat-out liar. Nowhere will you find that in the Word of God. There are rewards for generosity, and nowhere in the Bible does that have anything to do with material possessions. If you sit here today and you think, what are the greatest things in your life, if material possessions come to your mind, I feel sorry for you. My wife, my children, they're the greatest things that have ever happened to me from this side of heaven. It's nothing to do with material possessions. The rewards that God brings, who cares if they're material? That's just that's nothing. It'll all fade away. But having the peace of God, walking in rightness with Him, and those things you can't buy. If you think you can, then, then please stop giving <laughs> right now. If you think you can buy the favor of God, we don't need your tithe, I promise you. It's about a generous heart. It's about giving to God and receiving the rewards of obedience to Him. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When I talk about tithing, uh, with a few times I have, I'm very clear. Listen, if you don't give cheerfully, if, that, if that's not possible for you, then don't do it. Because I really don't believe we as Dubois Alliance Church and God needs a tithe from anybody. But as we are obedient to Him, that life of obedience has its own rewards. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Verse 18. At the moment, I have all I need and more. <laughs> Remember, this is a guy chained in a prison, probably in his own filth, because they didn't give him potty breaks. They just, it was disgusting. Do some research on a prison in that time. At the moment, I have all I need and more, Paul says. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And what a heart. This is somebody God can continually bless because the heart of gratitude he has can withstand the blessings of God. 
Paul is reiterating here through different words that what he is saying isn't to get another gift, but it's just the generosity and the gratitude he has for that. Verse 19, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Another clear message here from Paul, obedience and generosity bring God's rewards, and he is not talking about financial rewards. He's talking about things that far surpass anything money could ever purchase. And that's a right relationship with God. Not for everything we want, Paul is saying. That's not, that's not what's important, but what we need. God will always provide that. Verse 20. Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Paul finishes the main body of, of his letter uh, by again pointing their eyes away from self, away from Paul, away from prison and current circumstances, and toward God. He doesn't want any of the glory. He doesn't want any of their attention. He wants God to get all of that glory. It's all him, Paul's being very clear. God gets all the glory. Then he closes out in verses 21 to 23. Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings. And all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is Paul's regular pattern of ending his letters. If you've studied Paul at all, you know this is kind of how he ends his letters, with a benediction of grace. He likes to give that to them. But as we close, a couple of questions for you this morning. Is God speaking to your heart this morning? Is he kind of knocking on it and saying, this might be for you? You might be the anxious person God is talking about. You might be the worrier who thinks it's okay to worry. Is he making it clear to you that you are somebody Paul is speaking to in chapter 4 here, that these words are for you? Don't ignore that. When you're hearing something from God, when, whether it's a sermon or somebody on the radio or when you're just reading the Word of God and you feel like God is speaking directly to you, don't ignore that. Remember, if you belong to Christ... There is nothing that can have power over you that isn't from God. Anything from the enemy will fail because you are no longer a prisoner to that. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to anything of the enemy. You're his. And also remember, I got really far behind here. I don't know what happened. Can you advance me to the quote at the end? Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. Don't forget that. This week, as you, as you begin to think about certain things, as you begin to dwell on certain things, as the enemy tries to remind you and whisper certain things to you, remember that our, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. It's time to stop allowing your strongest thoughts to be those of worry and anxiety. Because if they are your strongest thoughts, you are allowing it. You have the power, and that power is God's, to stop that in its tracks. So to you in particular, if God's speaking to you, I encourage you to stand, and we're going to sing for one last time our theme song for this series. And I want you, if this is you this morning, I want you to shout this as a victory song over your worry and anxiety. I want us to celebrate, shout, and claim it that there ain't nothing going to steal our joy. Stand and let's worship to this one last time.
Amen. I hope you believe that this morning, and I hope you'll claim that over yourself, that there ain't nothing going to steal my joy. Why? Because we're his, and he does not allow the enemy in because we are his. Anything of the enemy that is in our lives, we are allowing it, and we also have the power to stop it. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that each and every one of us would commit this to our lives, that we would be people of joy, that this week today we would commit to always be full of joy, that we wouldn't accept a quarter full, that we wouldn't accept a half full, that we wouldn't accept seven-eighths full, that we would only accept what you have commanded us to be full of joy in the Lord. And God, I pray that over us this week because I trust the enemy will come after our joy this week. He will not allow us. He will try to convince us that that's just who we are. We're just not a joyful person. That's just not part of who we're supposed to be. And I I speak against that as a lie from the enemy this morning. God, I pray that you would give us the truths of God to speak over the lies this week, that we would be people of joy, and that those around us would notice that there is something different about us. And I pray that you would give us the words to be very clear. It is you. That is the difference. Our circumstances haven't changed. The, uh, The circumstances of our life aren't why we are joyful. That's not a byproduct of our circumstances, but instead we've committed to be fully dependent upon God. And that's where our joy comes from. Lord, I pray blessings over our week, over our weekend. And Lord, I pray uh, for uh, for those of us as we go out into the world that we would be bright lights that shine for you, Jesus. And that we would believe the truth that there ain't nothing gonna steal our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a good Memorial Day and a great weekend. Be blessed.